Welcome to Amiga Ireland. I'm Irla. I'm Rob. And I'm Luke. The history of gaming and Amiga in Italy is an interesting one, and our resident Italian Alessandro is involved with the Computer and Communications Museum of Ireland through his work, and he's going to take us through some of the highlights. How's it going, Alessandro? Benvenuto. Come va? Bene, grazie. Grazie di avermi qui con voi. Thank you for having me with you. Buonasera. Buonasera a voi. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, uh, we saw you recently uh, at Amiga Ireland and uh, we finally have a bit of time to have a, a chat because I know you're, um, we've had some interesting little side conversations about the uh, Amiga scene in, in Italy. But before we get to that, can you tell us what the pre-Commodore scene was like in Italy? Okay, this is actually uh, quite an interesting, if uh, rather short story, because uh, Commodore machines were effectively uh, though the enablers of game development in Italy. Before that, we really didn't have much. Uh, but what we had was actually quite iconic. Uh, and it was, for the most part, in the hands of uh, a single company, uh, a company called uh, Zaccaria, which was the surname of these uh, three brothers in Bologna, who in 1972 uh, established a company mostly for the sole purpose of uh, making pinball machines. Okay? Uh, it was a particular time then because uh, uh, before that time Italy was trying to import uh, traditional pinball machines uh, from the US. Uh, the problem was, however, that uh, the whole market of pinball gaming was not regulated at all and uh, pinball machines were likened to gambling because of the ability to uh, gain extra balls, mostly. The extra ball feature alone was considered a cause for, for gambling uh, and it was one of the reasons why it was actually pretty difficult to import pinball machines in Italy. So uh, the Zaccaria brothers, what they decided to do was first to start adapting uh, foreign machines for the Italian market, but uh, they very soon realized they could just very well develop their own pinball machines. These were, again, the uh, early 1970s. Uh, I think within, in the space of 16 years, they actually produced uh, several dozens of their own pinball machines, uh, which were actually of uh, very high quality. So much so, in fact, that uh, today you can actually play like a, a modern computer game uh, for Windows and Linux, which is uh, on Mac, called Zachariah Pinball. I mean, it's a computer game and it's a 3D reproduction of the original Zachariah uh, pinball tables in 3D. However, uh, interestingly enough, they, uh, the three brothers, soon realized that um, there might actually be some virgin territory for developing games. However, back then, the systems that people had in their homes were the game consoles, like, you know, the Intellivision, Atari, consoles and the problem is that there was just no not enough budget or support to be able to uh, develop games and publish them you know on cartridge that were just not yet a feasible thing so what they did basically was uh, produce arcade games okay and mm -hmm. they could do that and uh, because of the experience they had in the past what has been somehow the trend of initial game development in Italy that was basically producing uh, packs of existing uh, arcade games and releasing them as bootlegs. You know, if only for translating them into Italian. 
Uh, and nicely enough, Zakaria has since produced a few, not many, interesting arcade games. Uh, I can mention a few. One is called Money Money, and it was like a, a hybrid between a platform game and a Pac-Man uh, wannabe. And also others like Quasar mm -hmm. and uh, Jack Rabbit. It was a short-lived story, but quite interesting. It was mostly in the hands of one single company. And even interestingly enough, they dissolved right as Commodore machines were picking up speed in Italy. I see. So that's sort of when Commodore came onto the scene. Yes. Well, at uh -huh. least when it came to in Italy. I mean, so yeah, yeah. As Italians, we tend to be late with many things, especially <laughs> when it comes to adoption of technology. Commodore 64s were already widespread in 1985-86, hmm. but nobody really did consider producing games for them until, like, we're 1987-88. Right. And by the way, <laughs> the trend of, uh, of making bootlegs, <laughs> bootleg versions of games, uh, it actually carried forward <laughs> and expanded to, you know, encompass these machines. Commodore 64s and Amigas were actually heavily bootlegged. Uh, through mm -hmm. like shovelware compilations of uh, you know commercial games that were mm, maybe translated whose title was removed or changed and they, they would squeeze four or five games together in one floppy disk that you could buy news agents so <laughs> and they could do that because uh, again it was completely non-regulated the market there uh, another thing that I should mention is that um, for some reason other 8-bit computers didn't quite really uh, pick up in the country. Uh, I, for one, have never seen a running Amstrad CPC machine in the mm -hmm. country at all. Uh, despite you know being, despite it being so popular uh, with our French neighbors, they were not really mm -hmm. widespread in Italy. And more or less the same story goes for the uh, ZS Spectrum. I can say right from the outset that none of none of the companies that actually worked. Uh, on developing and publishing so gaming software f in the country ever did so much for Spectrum and Amstrad computers. Uh, it was just because you were, you were saying that the, it took a while for the, the Commodore 64 and the 8-bit stuff to arrive. What, so at, at what stage did the Amiga start to gain popularity in Italy? Well, I would say I would place that around 1989 for the reason alone when... Okay, if you want, I could project this to my own experience as a kid. Uh... When I started insisting with my family that I wanted my own uh, home computer uh, to do stuff mm -hmm. with and to play with, uh, the one I uh, it, it was exactly 1988 actually, and the one I and I was in, insisting on having a Commodore 64 uh, because mm -hmm. of uh, all of my friends having one. Uh, my father, who was actually uh, keen on getting you know cutting edge technology for, on some aspect, he insisted that I shouldn't really just get the, the machine that was, you know, going strong at the time just because the others had it. He insisted that I should get an Amiga. Uh, mm -hmm. And around that time, that mid-1988, we started seeing uh, commercials for Amiga 500 computers, like even on like kids' TV and that sort of thing. And it was actually being pushed as a, an all-rounder computer for cre creativity. Yeah, there was not much publicity, let's say not much uh, advertising for uh, Amiga 1000 or 2000 in that respect. I didn't even mm -hmm. know about the existence of the Amiga 1000. Things really started to pick up in 1989. You know, by then, 
not only I had my own Amiga 500, but also uh, other kids at school started getting theirs. Mm -hmm. And it also coincides with the year the existing gaming companies in the country would start producing games for the Amiga and for a short time, I should say, the Atari ST. So that is the story. Okay, so uh, uh, did uh, did any more companies, you know, like come along and what did they release actually? Okay, well, uh, as I said, Zakaria didn't last long enough to actually start considering making games mm -hmm. for Commodore 64 and the Amiga. And quite interestingly, the whole landscape of gaming production for Commodore machines was for like three, four years in the hands of three companies alone. Okay, there were three companies all based in Northern Italy. These three companies were uh, Simulmondo, Idea or Idea Software, and Genius. Uh, now, Simulmondo and Genius were based in, uh, in Bologna, just like Zaccaria, whereas Idea was just uh, based further north uh, in the area where Varese is, not far from Milan, you could say. And basically, mm -hmm. they, these three companies together, up to like 1992 or so, were considered as the only reference producers of, uh, of gaming software for Commodore 64 and the Amiga. I should say, uh, in this respect, that they were also uh, highly focused companies with respect to the, uh, the genres and the coverage that they would uh, have for their own games. They all have two things in common in their, uh, in their production. They all made extensively sports games. Every one of them made, <laughs> published at least one uh, football game, you know, soccer game. And they could do that also pretty easily uh, because, again, we're talking about 1988-1990. It so happened that 1990 was the year where the, FI the FIFA World Cup took place in Italy. Yeah. And we're talking about a period where there was no such thing as extremely ex expensive licenses for FIFA or for the Formula One. Even if they were enforced, they were still going to be very far from being enforced in Italy. So therefore, mm -hmm. pretty much everyone could, uh, you know, make their own FIFA World Cup game or their own official, so to speak, F1 GP game. And they, in fact, all did it. I mean, there have been several instances of, uh, of football games. So, like, two of the earliest ones were produced in 1988 up to 1990. Uh, they were called, like, World Cup 90 uh, and Italy 90 Soccer. They were both developed by uh, a group of talented developers, the Dardari brothers, who actually specialized in the production of uh, sports games for a few years on the Amiga. And, okay, there were also other sports recovered, not to mention also uh, Formula One racing, like I said. But the other characteristic feature uh, of the genre coverage of these companies was that they all developed and published adaptations of comic books, but mostly about Italian comic books, but not only. In, uh, this was actually mostly in the hands of, uh, of Simulmondo. As a matter of fact, Genius did publish gaming adaptation of the comic book uh, Nathan Never uh, around 1991. But in general, let's say Idea Software took up the, uh, the more comedic types of comics, such as, say, Katevic or um, Sturmtruppen, Lupo Alberto. They're all mainly published by Idea, whereas um, Simulmondo uh, covered mostly the serious comic books, if you will. So characters like Dylan Dog, Tex Willer, 
Diabolic. They were, were featured in a rather lengthy run of uh, of mo- games that were on a monthly publishing schedule. So, so can you explain the episodic game production? Like, was this like, let's say, uh, you know, you go to buy a comic, and every week or month there's a new issue of the comic that continues the story. Was was that? Was it like? Um, was it like a? Was it something like that? New levels, almost like was it like DLC or something in a way where you got new levels every once in a while for this for a similar style game? You could say, in a sense, that uh, episodic game production in Italy. Uh, was really the precursor of what is considered normal today. You know, when you look at uh, modern gaming franchises being published in episodic content delivery model, uh, it actually picked up speed in around 1993-1994. Okay, and it was largely again in the hands of maybe one of the most uh, the company that looked ahead the most. That was Simulmondo again. They had by the end of 1992 published uh, some standalone comic book adaptations of like Dylan Dog and, and Tex and they were sold at retail stores uh, but around nine, the end of 92 they struck a deal with um, Sergio Bonelli Editore which was one of the biggest comic book pub- publishers in the country and the deal was such that they would Simulmondo would basically produce a series of games mostly like action adventure games to be published every every month for purchase and news agents, just like comic books. Sometimes they would be bundled with short stories as well. And sometimes they would just uh, be published alongside existing comic books. There have been exceptions to that rule. For example, the uh, the retail published Dylan Dog game, so The Murderers, Yu Chizori, was actually based on a, short, on a short story that was written ad hoc by original writer Tiziano Sclavi. Now, you have to understand that publishing every month games from several franchises at the same time would actually prove to be a pretty taxing schedule and for that reason uh, those games would tend to uh, be very similar to each other. They would always repeat the same formula of being mostly like fixed screen, side view, action adventures with some say multiple selection screens for dialogue or like a, some basic point-and-click interfaces. And as time went by, uh, towards 1994, it was actually less and less sustainable to keep this model going forward, uh, which is why, for example, the point-and-click part and the, or the dialogue screens were sometimes eliminated in the later uh, episodic production. Although in the beginnings, uh, comic book ad- adaptations, and among these I already mentioned Dylan Dog and Tex, Diabolic was another one, and there were even three I think three or four uh, adaptations of Spider-Man. There were actually mm. some Spider-Man games produced in Italy because Bonelli, I think, was then the licensee of Spider-Man comics for Italy. So that's why they, they kind of got this this deal then. Uh, but they even expanded to, say, original franchises. Uh, and mm. Simulmondo, as a matter of fact, had uh, their own cyberpunk, heavily William Gibson-influenced franchise called Simulman. And uh, later on, they actually teamed up with another publisher uh, that was Fabri and Rizzoli, through which they published an episodic series that ran for 30 volumes, and that's called Time Runners. And this is actually pretty interesting for, let's say, uh, my non-Italian speakers, non-Italian speaking friends, because it's the only one that was localized in English and in other languages. All the other episodic games were exclusive in Italian. I should also say this, yeah. 
Mm, wow. So was it a case that they were the same same main characters every time? Is there the same theme? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, they somehow okay. had, had to save on resources and assets. You know, they had to deliver several of them every month with the same development teams. And if, if eventually that uh, had an impact, you could say, on, uh, on their ability to follow uh, quality standards by their own admission. And that's basically where the uh, the whole episodic game development period kind of dried up, along with other game developments for the Amiga. And that was in 1994. Okay. By then, other companies that uh, had been born and others had also tried to follow suit with the episodic delivery model. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, another publishing company called Hobby and Work in 1994 commissioned uh, an adaptation of like a fantasy novel series called The Ancestral Trail to an Italian developer for the production of a four-part adventure game series. Now, uh, this developer that was called Holodream uh, effectively developed and finalized versions of these four games for MS-DOS and the Amiga at the same time. However, by that time, uh, Hobby and Work just decided not to publish the Amiga version, mostly in the wake of uh, Commodore's demise, which pretty much spelled the end of the, the... I mean, ability to take risks and publish games for the Amiga for all companies that haven't been there. So the, uh, the Amiga versions of the uh, Ancestral Trail or La Storia Ancestrale, how, uh, the way they're originally titled, didn't actually see the light until 2007 when coder Fabrizio Farenga published it on his own webpage. Very good. So uh, is, there, is there somewhere that all, all, all these uh, different episodes have been archived? I'm afraid not all of them, not all together. <laughs> As part of, say, gathering information about them and, and even you know, doing just research about their own existence and the content, this is something I'm setting out to do. I have contributed quite a few Italian titles for the Amiga and Commodore 64 and the Moby Games database, but I am still to do my research on all these episodic game series. From what I've gathered so far, they have been approximately 85 titles published by Simul Mondo alone, mm. to which you probably need to add like five or six other attempts at producing episodic games. But uh, mm. I could say with a bit, little bit of pride, if you will, that in this respect, someone in Italy actually managed to look ahead of the market and they were probably too much ahead of their times with the idea of having episodic game production. I mean, it only really took up how many years later? 20 years later, perhaps, mm. you know, with the Telltale uh, adventure games uh, and all that. But uh, 20 years ago, it was really un- next to unthinkable. But yeah, unfortunately, yeah. because of their ties with the uh, comic book licenses, which I think have since expired, not many of these have been made available. Okay, there is a busy Italian Amiga group on Facebook as well. Um, are there many Amiga or Commodore or Commodore Amiga events in Italy? I have to be pretty honest, I haven't really been seriously informed of one since the uh, EPSA conferences that was were going on in the 1990s. Uh, I have little ties with the Commodore Amiga users group because for the most part they, um, on Facebook I mean, because for the most part they, you know, focus on past glories, but not so much for the country, but in general for their interest with the Amiga. And uh, it just turns out that because Italians have this penchant for football, uh, hmm. that sensible soccer has been, in a way, the reason for many Italians to play with or even remember the Amiga, I should say. Mm-hmm. But still, it has occurred more than once that through the, the Italian Amiga users group, I could get in touch with those, uh, 
developers, Italian developers of games that were other, either you know, contractors of the three main companies at the time, or those who actually that actually came later. So, uh, in in this respect, I should say that um, the the initial Italian companies pretty much operated in a similar fashion as those in the UK, like Ocean Software. Okay, Ocean Software mostly had development in-house. They would sometimes hire contractors, bedroom programmers, they would actually employ them uh, full-time, but mostly there was no such thing really as a development studio. Okay, it was uh, quite a rare thing to find. Uh, that was pretty much the same, the same thing in Italy. Okay, companies would typically hire uh, a team of uh, very young sometimes really very as young as 14 enthusiast, enthusiastic developers to work on a game usually with a rather tight deadline and then you know could never tell what the future would have uh, in store for them sometimes you know they would be faced with the choice of uh, you know finishing school or trying their careers as game as game developers uh, now the latter was really a rare thing to happen Things like development studios in Italy really started taking up around, could say, also 1992, when it was the case that some of these developers would actually uh, start moving from one publisher to another for the games. Like Holodream uh, was, aforementioned Holodream was one such example. Okay, they had developed for Genius mostly, but they had also developed uh, some stuff for other companies, and at some point they knocked at Team 17's door. <laughs> when uh, they actually had their own uh, Formula One racing game, which was then called F1 Challenge. But because it was 1993 by then, the question of, of having a, a Formula One license had become a real one and was being enforced. They could not publish it as F1 Challenge. And that's why you would probably know about a Team 17 published game mm -hmm. called F17 Challenge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> that was eventually made in Italy. So just going back to events uh, for a second, if like when Amiga Ireland started out we, we just started as an online thing and waited to gather enough people and then we picked a central location and we met there and that was basically how we started so if, if something like that was to be repeated say as an experiment in Italy to try and get a, an annual event going where do you think would be the right place to do it? If I could pick one it would actually be it would be Bologna because it was a city where two-thirds of game production in Italy for the Amiga and for communities in general started and it's uh, you know it's one of the uh, great academic cities of Europe you know it's a city with the oldest university in Europe beautiful city and great to live in I think there, there must be something special in the water of Bologna that inspires so much creativity and enthusiasm and ingenuity but that's definitely okay. where we pick it ah, okay so you talked a lot about games so far but um were there any applications developed in Italy around the time? Well, uh, I'd like to mention one, which has probably been the, uh, if you want the pride of its application development, that would be Tornado 3D, which ah, was uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually the uh, 3D modeling software that you would play somehow between Imagine and, and Lightwave. It was actually mm -hmm. developed by an, uh, an Italian studio called iLight. It has since been, as you, as you know, taken over by Hagen Partner and has uh -huh. pretty much been sitting with them for several years now. I think the latest releases and updates of Tornado 3D were actually made by Hagen Partner, but we're still talking about the very early 2000. Mm -hmm. But it was effectively originally an uh, internet production. And for that, I'm actually very proud. Mm, absolutely. It was well, well regarded. Yeah. Were there any artists or musicians that became popular in Italy, actually? 
You mean out of uh, uh, Amiga out of being a game producer? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. I honestly can't think of one. Most of them come to my mind have somehow remained in the uh, the production of video games for modern platform, but not like they've became renowned artists or musicians outside of uh, computer game music production, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just going back to the uh, the museum that we spoke about at the beginning. So you're involved with the Computer and Communications Museum of Ireland through your work. I'm just wondering, was that part of a plan or was it a happy accident, a coincidence? Oh, it's actually a nice story to tell. Okay, I should say at this point that I uh, that I really literally work next door to the museum. Like my office is mm-hmm. literally next door. And I remember it when I, when I when I did the interview for the job. We're talking about August, August uh, 2017. After I did the interview, the next day I was like called upon. They kind of told me, yeah, you know, we'd like to give it the job, but we understand you might still not be totally convinced whether you want to live in Ireland uh, and to live in Galway. Uh, so maybe it might help if we could just uh, give you a tour of the Institute, you know, of, the, uh, of what we have here, what activities are carried out in here. And yes, it was August, so hardly anyone was in there. Uh, and I was kind of given an exclusive tour of the museum, which at the time uh, was, uh, but still, you know, I was given like five minutes to give myself a tour of the museum. And when those five minutes were, o- were over, I kind of told myself that I was going to take the job. You could say uh, a good uh, 40% of me decided to take the job was uh, thanks to whoever had the great idea to show me the museum after the interview. <laughs> oh, very good. Nice. Nice. I've got a question regarding developers. Are there any still active, you know, like a Commodore 64 or Amiga developers in Italy? Uh, well, not uh, necessarily as Commodore 64 or Amiga developers, but uh, several of them have remained in the game development scene uh, one way or another. One example, let's say, is the um, is a company that was uh, born in another region of northern Italy, which is Liguria, and that's the uh, the case of uh, Artematica, which still exists today and was founded by, by former Simulmondo designers and developers, and they still produce games to this day. Mostly, they're like uh, they also have delved in uh, in the adaptations of comic books like Martin Mystere and and others. But they actually have acquired a diversified portfolio, uh, and also the, uh, the the founder of uh, of Idea Software, Antonio Farina, in the early 1990s, founded another company called Graffiti, which is today known as Milestone, and has spent the last 20 odd years specializing in the production of racing games. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. Milestone has developed for many years official licensees of uh, MotoGP and the WRC rally games, so much so that they even very recently produced one motor racing games that was sponsored by Valentino Rossi, the, the man himself. Another one I can, I can mention, there's a team called Nats Team. They were the developers of the uh, versus fighting game called Shadow Fighter originally. They've gone on to, to develop other games like uh, Gekido and others. They exist this very day and they still develop games for PC and current generation consoles. The latest one being, uh, I think, Iron Wings, that came out like a couple of years ago. Uh, another one I can mention is another former Simulmondo guy, mainly a 64 developer and then game designer for the Amiga. Uh, his name is uh, Ivan Venturi. Quite interesting, 
He has been working the last few years on a game called Pride Run, which is being advertised as being as being the first LGBT themed game made in Italy. It's going to be like something between a Street Fighter kind of clone and mm -hmm. a more general purpose arcade game, but I'm honestly very curious to hear what he has in store with this game. Mm -hmm. I've got another question regarding demo scene. Are you familiar with any demo scene or productions or any demo scene Italy-based groups? Honestly, no, because I am not a demo scene guy oh, okay. in general. I That's have to fine. say that uh, with a bit of regret, I've always been a kind of a consumer of the Amiga, never really a producer, which is something that, you know, you might say it's never too late, even 25 years after <laughs> the, the, the Admiral demise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> demise. We might yeah. just as well, you know, uh, kind of get back to it. After all, I'm a programmer, although I yeah, mostly develop with high-level languages, but always uh, had an interest in going back to the uh, developing in low-level languages or in assembly, something like that. So going mm -hmm. back to the old 68,000 might even, you know, spark an interest in uh, in the demo scene as a whole. Who knows? Okay. And your own Amiga, Alessandro, um, you were telling me it was packed away in 2002, but you've brought it just recently back to Ireland. Oh, what's it like to have it back? It was great, even though it was a partial success to try to uh, bring it back to life. Uh, it's been a 90% success, you would say. Uh, uh, yeah, I packed it away in 2002 when my TV died, which was like uh, the only uh, device I had for... Uh, for output to screen back then and I, yeah never to touch it again for over 16 years as a matter of fact i really owe this to you know the amigo ireland both the event and you know its continued participation with the activities in the museum uh you know for giving me somehow the hope and the strength to try and bring it back so yeah i brought back my amiga 500 and nearly everything seems to be in order the one thing that puzzles me right now is uh yeah uh fixing my mouse port, as the cursors only seem to be moving up and down, <laughs> not sideways. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of the obvious things. Basically, there are two pins involved in up and down, two pins involved in left and right. So if either of those two pins are bent or broken uh, for left or right, it, w it won't work. But, um, you know, so it might be worth checking to see because occasionally you can get pins that get pushed back into the computer and they're shorter than the other ones are broken off or whatever. Um, but it might, that might be worth a look, and if that's the case, then it's easy enough to replace the socket. But failing that, there's a there's a chip, and it's reasonably common to cause problems like this. And it's just a small logic chip that multiplexes all the signals together, and that's uh, I think it's a seven four one six six chip. But um, it's rel it's it, you know it's a common part, and it's you know if you have sort of the time to check the signals, you know, with a multimeter or you know with the you know sort of some sort of LED or something like that. Um, it's, it's it's worth tracing the signals in and out of that chip because it's uh, yeah it's a fairly common fault to, for that chip to just die and you can you can replace it you know it's tricky to solder it but it, it can be done very easily. It might be the case because uh, I think we had a look at the pins and they all seem to be in order at least mm -hmm. you know with the naked eye. Yeah, oh, yeah it should be fairly obvious uh, you know if, if the pins that, that badly damaged that doesn't work you know it's going to look like it's missing. Um, so uh, yeah, so now my my next guess would be the that that seven four seven four LS one six six chip or whatever it is. If, if you have you any electronics experience at all? Uh, not much, I'm afraid. But it, it, no. it's, it might just be something I develop. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. the opportunity. 
<laughs> but that's it. The, the um, you can get the schematics are all available. You see, so uh, you know it's 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 worth downloading them. And there's some nice PDF versions or nice uh, you know uh, scalable PDFs of them. You know that they have been reworked, so they're quite easy to follow. And yeah, it's basically it's just this chip that basically. Uh, it sort of it sort of swaps between the different pins and sends the signals into the. I think it go they go to Denise after that for for counting the mouse movement. And so, yeah, if this chip isn't working, that's that's it. It's it, you just don't get one of the directions. Great. Think I could ask you to drop me a note about this. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the, yeah, the no number. That's <laughs> great. Thank you so much. Yeah, no worries. Well, we've got a series of questions uh, regarding the word favorite. So uh, I'm going to start with your. Uh, favorite mod. What is your favorite mod module? If it comes to Amiga, if it, if you have one. Yeah. Well, uh, as it turns out, I'm kind of a rock and roll guy. Oh, okay. In many respects, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I'm not so much into if you want the uh, the techno and this trans outside of things. So uh, my choice is rather peculiar, and I really think my choice will have to fall on the main theme from the Chuck Rock game. Oh, okay. It's an absolutely brilliant rock and roll piece. Hmm. I'm trying to remember yeah. it. I don't think I, I. I don't think I know it. I'll have to look that up now. Yeah, hmm. it, it's just too bad on that game. You still need to choose between, you know, music and sound effects. And sound effects happen to be really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so speech, but tough choice then. If you had to make the tough choice, my choice, my choice goes on goes on uh, enabling the music on that game. And if you had to pick a favorite game, would it be the same one, Jack Rock? Well? No, I don't <laughs> think so. Uh, it would actually be pretty hard because, again, my favorite Amiga games are n- not surprised really. They're mostly everyone's favorite Amiga games. So, yeah, I could pick like Flashback Syndicate, uh, you know, uh, X, the first XCOM, Speedball 2. Lotus, probably. probably. Had, uh, this is actually tricky because there is a game I prefer to Lotus. So, in this case, if, uh, in if I were to pick a game that is, uh, in a way, the underdog, not the one that not many pick as a favorite, but I would, that would be Crazy Cars 3. Oh, okay. That's a good uh, one I as well. I think it's an absolutely brilliant game. Uh, and, yeah, I think by far is my favorite racing game on the Amiga. Sorry, Lotus. It, it just has the Need for Speed feel that no other game uh, on, the, on our scene has. I'm sorry. It might be not very popular because of you know it's uh, uh, the pedigree coming from the franchise and the reputation that the the company producing it had in the 80s. But it so happened that at some point I don't know what really in what state of grace they were when they made it. But to me, hmm. Crazy Cars 3 is absolutely brilliant. That's fair enough. Um, and the, the last of these questions: if if you had to pick a favorite application, what would it be? Oh. I don't suppose I can mention XCopy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was a favorite of a lot of people, I think. No, but I, I actually, I meddled with uh, Deluxe Paint 3, mm. although not in a way, in such a way as to become a real artist myself. But it's probably the application I've had most fun with, on the Amiga mm-hmm. myself, yeah. I think there's people out there whose favorite pastime in the Amiga is making copies of XCopy mm. using XCopy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Last but not least, uh, what's your best memory of Amiga over the years? Whether recent or maybe from the past? I should mention maybe from the recent past, so to speak. And it was when Amiga 30 happened. 
Okay, uh, cool. That they started you know, spawning spawning several events, you know, in in the Netherlands, uh, in the UK, in Germany, and that was uh, pretty much when I realized after 15 years of having been away from the scene in many ways that there was really so much interest and still so much enthusiasm not to mention the chance to you know uh, meet some of my old heroes in person mm -hmm. that i never thought i would get uh, i never thought i would live to see it happen and yes it basically where th that was the point back in 2015 Especially when I joined the first one of these uh, of these events, uh, which was the Amiga 30 in Amsterdam, then going all the way up to meeting the same people again four years later uh, in Athlone just a few weeks ago. <laughs> uh, I mean, strangely enough, my fondest memory is not from the heyday of the Amiga, probably, but from most recent years. Um, I have no shame in revealing that. Yeah, that's lovely. Oh, very good yeah well listen Alessandro thank you so much for taking the time to join us and uh, to take us through a bit of the Italian uh, Amiga history we're going to put a couple of links in the show notes that you can go and if, uh, check out thank you any really. of those uh, items we talked about if you want to learn more about them Absolutely. and uh, we'll see you soon at the museum and we'll uh, maybe take a look at that <laughs> yeah. Amiga 500 again we're not many weeks away I think from having another go at it right that's right, yeah. And if you're listening and uh, you'd like to attend, we meet once a month in the Computer and Communication Museum of Ireland. It's based in Galway. And uh, you just need to drop us an email at info at amigausers.ie just to make sure our um, space is limited there. We, we definitely have plenty of space at the moment, but there, there would be a, a cap at some stage. So uh, just get in touch and um, we can uh, make arrangements from there. Yeah, okay. So thanks again, Alessandro, and thanks everybody for listening. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 So, see you soon. Bye-bye.